I'm Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This activity is accredited for ANCC, AAPA, and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the Claim Credit button on the webinar console. Otherwise, please go to covid19.dkbmed.com, navigate to our multi-specialty episodes, and select the webinar to claim credit. Today's learning objective is to discuss immune response to infection with Omicron variant after vaccination. This activity is supported by independent medical education grants from Gilead Sciences, as well as in-kind support from DKB Med. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Alwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Thank you for your time, Dr. Alwater. Yeah, thank you, Rachel, and I'm uh, very glad that you're having me here today. Uh, the topic that I thought we'd focus on are just vaccines and some important questions that uh, many patients have asked me about, uh, especially those that maybe have preferred not to be immunized, especially as the uh, Omicron variant has uh, moved into subvariants that have become uh, uh, extremely common in many parts of the world. What we can say about Omicron is two uh, issues so far. If you're looking at a weekly rolling average of uh, deaths per million people, uh, clearly as Omicron has evolved, the numbers have declined. And I think this is both due to vaccine and possibly uh, infection-acquired immunity, as well as uh, the fact that Omicron may be less, less pathogenic, uh, especially the BA1 and BA2 subvariants. So uh, this is all good news, but uh, this virus, just by the sheer dint of having an extraordinary number of infections occurring worldwide every day, this RNA virus continues to mutate and really seek advantages in the face of what would be vaccine adversity to the vaccine in terms of uh, immune pressures. So uh, what we do know is that breakthrough infection with Omicron is much more common than we've seen, for example, with um, uh, to some degree alpha and certainly with delta. Although breakthrough infections occur there, uh, all in keeping, though, that these breakthrough infections did not put many people in the hospital. And if you got at least one booster, uh, really uh, lowered your chances of severe COVID-19 or landing in the hospital. But uh, Israeli data, which we've discussed on earlier programs, um, had a suggestion that a second booster may be effective, perhaps because of waning immunity, and also that Omicron uh, requires perhaps um, a greater amount of neutralizing antibodies because of less affinity for vaccine-induced antibodies uh, 
uh, in order to neutralize the virus and prevent any infection. So we, we do know from this data, although it's short term, uh, that a booster did appear to decrease uh, the risk for severe COVID and hospitalizations. But what patients have been asking is, well, what happens if I'm immunized and got Omicron? Should I go and get a second booster, for example? And of course, no one can predict what, uh, what the next variant or subvariant of Omicron will be. But I think this is from Jesse Bloom, a virologist that uh, uh, blogs quite a bit and uh, has a, a wonderful reputation, put together a slide here that um, I'm also showing you that you can see on his uh, uh, website or Twitter feed about uh, studies that suggested in people that were immunized, if you look at the so-called uh, original Wuhan uh, H1 uh, virus, which was isolated way back in uh, 2020, and then uh, the variants uh, BA1 and BA2, they're generally in range, although you get the sense uh, that Omicron, uh, especially in the Yamasova paper, might be a bit less uh, um, uh, affected by uh, these antibodies. But these antibodies are very uh, good uh, and, and give you levels that uh, probably will persist for a while. So running out to get an additional booster uh, is not terribly worthwhile. But in people that have been immunized, uh, they certainly have some of the best antibody levels that we see. But as this march of Omicron subvariants continue, uh, in the United States, most have now been BA2 with further subvariants from there. Um, and, and these, as you can see, compared to the earlier Omicron variants do differ. Uh, in some degree. And then we have BA4 and BA5, which you may have not heard very much about. It's currently uh, uh, relatively rampant in South Africa. And this has the L452R mutation. And uh, this is something that uh, the original Omicron lacked and um, uh, decreases fusogenicity uh, of the virus to cells. And uh, um, also is a reason why it may not uh, be a predilection for the lungs. Some animal models show that um, uh, variants that have this mutation are more lung-centric, whereas uh, the earlier Omicron variants lacking this one uh, behaved a little more like a, a traditional coronavirus infection that was more upper respiratory. So these definitely bear watching. There's not a indication yet that uh, uh, BA4 or 5 are uh, more pathogenic, but this is, this is a concern and uh, uh, certainly bears watching. Uh, but this just gives you a flavor for how these mutations have evolved rather uh, rapidly uh, with different uh, mutations in short order uh, with the BA2 strain and its subvariants now becoming dominant. So what about all these subvariants like uh, 2.12.1, which is uh, quite common now, especially in New York and New England? Uh, uh, these mutations have increased affinity to the uh, SARS-CoV-2 receptor, and that's the ACE2 receptor uh, uh, present on many cells. Uh, there appears to be more breakthroughs, perhaps because of this, and some decrease in the recognition 
of neutralizing antibodies. What we do know is if someone has been immunized and gets Omicron, uh, up to 80% of memory B cells from this paper uh, uh, still recognize um, uh, viruses, including going back to the original Wuhan strain. Whereas if you did not um, ever be immunized and only had Omicron, there's much less recognition. And uh, from an earlier paper, that was 15%. So uh, the point is, if you only have had Omicron and this virus mutates in a way, incorporates aspects of earlier variants such as alpha or delta, uh, then this might be problematic. And you know, some of the earlier thoughts that uh, infection-acquired immunity uh, would be maybe 70 to 80% protective for up to 12 months based on UK and other data would not hold true. So I think in conclusion regarding uh, this, these data, um, I would say people that have not been immunized uh, certainly is still uh, a very good idea to do so. And even if people have had uh, 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 immunization in Omicron, it does bear watching on future recommendations. And of course, there'll be a lot of attention on the vaccine and related uh, biologic meeting uh, committee meeting that the FDA will hold in late June to sort of review whether uh, uh, future boosters will incorporate uh, a different uh, genetic sequence in the original Wuhan strain. So um, I think there's a lot of argument whether we chase the latest variant may not be the right option here. Um, certainly the uh, BA2 variant would be a poor choice if there is some incorporation or reversion to earlier variants. Uh, lastly, I wanted to show you uh, something that was recently published that the CDC has been working on that uh, I think is wonderful, but been great if it was present a little earlier. And there's lots of uh, abbreviations and um, so on here, but this gives you an idea of how uh, vaccine administration has been going uh, in the U.S., um, as well as a lot of other metrics. But the one that I thought was most helpful is going over on the right-hand side and gives you an idea of the number of events reported as you uh, look through um, a data uh, to understand if um, uh, events are more frequent or not, or something is very rare, um, uh, whether that's something uh, that's of a concern. Now, you know, as you sort of look at this and look at anaphylaxis, for example, you can see the numbers are really very small. And I think that's very reassuring given the millions of vaccines. Some people are, are worried about something like MS being precipitated or acute demyelinated encephalomyelitis. You can see the numbers are extraordinarily small. So I, I, I do think on the whole, this sometimes can be reassuring and give you a quick insight as to whether a, a clinical situation comes up, what, uh, what's been reported about it in context if you're looking at a uh, event temporarily related to immunization uh, against SARS-CoV-2. And of course, uh, these really aren't normalized to um, uh, population levels, uh, but does give you an idea just of the gross numbers, which are generally on the low side. 
So, uh, Rachel, that's all I have for this week. And uh, I, I think there are some questions as well. Yes, thank you. First question, how much protection does one-way masking provide? Well, uh, I think a number of studies, this is always a hard one to look at, have estimated somewhere around 10% protection wearing something like a surgical mask. You might get a little more protection by a so-called tight-fitting mask or double masking. Of course, that would be stepped up significantly if you're uh, using a N95 mask uh, and perhaps slightly less if using a KN95 or K94 mask. Uh, certainly, when I go into uh, very crowded situations, I wear higher quality masks. Um, I'm planning to travel uh, internationally and be on a long haul flight, and I'll be wearing one of those higher quality masks during that time. So it does provide some, and I, I think it is important because uh, especially I'm face to face with patients, we're still uh, wearing masks and no longer face shields in these situations. And so if you want some protection, um, I think it, it does afford some, and if you're having a concern or your community levels of uh, COVID are rising, it, it might be prudent to put them back on unless if this virus truly uh, continues its march to lower pathogenicity and, and becomes more of a mundane event. But I think time will still be needed here to say for sure. And of course, if you're uh, of uh, advanced age, have significant comorbidities or very immunosuppressed, such as a solid organ transplant, uh, prudence is probably your best option in any of these situations. And um, I think mask wearing will become a more common feature, especially during respiratory season with influenza as we move ahead in future years, at least in North America. Okay, and here's our other question. With rapid antigen tests more readily available now, is there much value in PCR tests for most people? I think the question of whether you have uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2, the rapid antigen tests have been very helpful with the caveat that especially if someone's been immunized following exposure, uh, the average time that you should probably test is five days with the antigen test because that's probably when you might get enough of a signal uh, for it to trigger a positive. Now, there may be times where you've had a contact, you're concerned if you're infected, and perhaps you're going to visit someone that's at risk. You want to know if you're infectious or not. Uh, and that's where uh, molecular testing uh, will carry much greater sensitivity for picking up the earlier phases of infection. Um, so if uh, you're going into a scenario where you're having that concern, rather than waiting for five days, I, I do think molecular testing is reasonable uh, in those situations. And also for people that might be at increased health risks or very immunosuppressed, you might as well have the gold standard to help answer your question uh, rather than the antigen test. But they've been very helpful. I think that certainly is another reason why we don't have a, a, a great understanding of the number of positive cases in our communities Although uh, the free tests are gone, so people are having to purchase them now. But for example, uh, we keep a few on hand just so we can 
uh, rapidly test and understand uh, if those kind of scenarios arise, because uh, getting COVID tests, especially as the pandemic has waned somewhat and testing uh, locations have declined, has sometimes become a little more of a challenge to get on an, an expedient basis. Dr. Atwater, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Rachel. I hope you're all doing well and uh, staying safe, and, and hopefully um, we're all in a uh, situations where we would, don't have to be worried about a, a very large surge. So thanks so much for listening. Dr. Atwater, thank you so much for those updates. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, visit us at covid19.dkbmed.com. Again, thank you for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.